Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Down With D&D. I am Sean Merwin, and with me this week again, I don't know why he keeps coming back, but he, the glutton for punishment that he is, he's back again, Mr. Teos Abadia. Teos, happy how's it going? To, I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here, Sean. Yeah. It's we're, a lovely we're, day. We're laboring on Labor Day, as, yeah. as, as we should, uh, although the show will drop through the magic of podcast time three days later. Um, yeah, and I was I was mentioning bef- before we started recording that normally this is my favorite week of the whole year because um, we have got we've got this Monday off normally. Uh, my wife's a teacher, so she goes back to school normally the, the following day. You know, my daughter would be off at school. It's just for me, there's always this. This is the feeling of a fresh start for me this week normally. Uh, and so there's still a little bit of that, you know, football will happen this week. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, but it's something I can connect with my brothers about. So, you know, that there's the trash talking of, of your team's better than my team sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's just this, the whole COVID thing just takes it down a few notches for me. So I'm, I'm trying to remain positive. Uh, there are yeah, some good, good things. That. Yeah, there are some good things coming up, uh, which we will talk about in the news, but how, how are you feeling? Uh, I was feeling good until your pep talk. <laughs> hey, <laughs> now, I said well, there's good things coming. It reminded me that a year ago, oh, you know, yeah. where were we, right? We were having one of the best times of our professional careers Yeah. at PAX physically, back when, when one could do this physically. Right. Uh, amongst the 60,000 plus people, and it was you and Scott Fitzgerald Gray and I, and we were doing seminars and we were going to book signings, which is an insane thing that never happens to a designer. Yeah. And we were eating dim sum with your family. You know, it was just, yeah, it was, it was something that for sure I miss. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I went from that PAX to Las Vegas where I met with my brothers and we had just a grand time just being ridiculous and, and taking in the, the, excess that is las vegas and uh, this year it's just like the complete opposite but we're, we're hanging on to those memories um if people could see us they would see your background is the acquisitions incorporated book uh, i'm wearing I, a pax t-shirt from the star yeah. king's thunder days so there you go yeah uh, and i'm i'm actually one of the highlights uh, of my week for the past several weeks has been running the acquisitions incorporated campaign uh I could tell stories about this group. It's just un, unbelievable uh, what, what they are doing. Um, I can't imagine. Yeah. But we have a lot of news to get to this week, and then we will take our final look at chapters four, five, and six of Mythic Odysseys of Theros. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like the news has just been coming fast and furious. The news comes faster than the products. And the products are coming pretty fast. So yeah. uh, you want to talk about the Magic the Gathering <laughs> announcement, Teos? Oh, man. So I watched this announcement, uh, which was for overall Magic the Gathering, like what they're doing for the, for the coming year and or I don't know, years. Well, I guess next year. And we'll get to the big thing in a moment. But first, they start with this video that was like a really cool animated movie that was just, I mean, really, like, jaw-droppingly good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a trailer out there you can check out for the uh, their release of, the, of their new set. Um, and then the whole production of this announcement was really impressive with actors walking around in Indiana Jones looking set and, you know, going to different from one person to another. And it was really amazing. Uh, and in amongst this giant Magic the Gathering production, they announced that... In the third quarter, their big release is a Dungeons and Dragons Adventures in the Forgotten Realms Magic the Gathering set. Wow. Yeah, I. it's another one of those I never thought I would see the day. <laughs> and they just keep, they just keep coming. Uh, I yeah. never thought I'd see the day that 
that first we would see magic come into D and D, and and it made sense. So I I never thought it would happen just for logistical reasons, um, not for story reasons, and and that's happened several times now, which we're talking about today even. But I never thought I'd see the day that D and D crossed over and became a magic set. Yeah, um, it's it's really uh, amazing, and I, this is only possible because of the strength of the D and D brand right now, right? And sure. Like it has to be that this, because the, the Magic the Gathering releases are a big deal, and folks may not know this, but like a gaming store can keep its doors open. Mm-hmm. solely based on their release days right. of Magic the Gathering cards and all that other stuff they sell in the store, that's all well and good. But keeping the lights on operating can be done just on those few days when you release these new sets. Uh, so this is a tremendous thing for the industry when a new release is announced. And for it to be D&D based talks about the level to which Wizards of the Coast believes in D&D. Like this, mm-hmm. is, this is truly significant. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, you know, hearing just internal scuttlebutt from wizards. This was going back years and years where, you know, magic would look down their nose at the D and D side of things and just say, yeah, you know, you guys are just in business because thanks to us. So you go off and you do your little role-playing game books while we, you know, make not millions, but billions of dollars with our cardboard. Right. Right. And I'm wondering if, if it has anything to do with, with COVID, if anything to do with the pandemic, where if sales are down at all on the magic side because people can't get together in stores and play. And yeah. It's a good it's, question. I mean, yeah. they, they have their online play arena, which seems to be doing very well. Uh, right. In the past, they've had others that didn't seem to do well, but right. this seems to be going well. And um yeah, it's hard to say. One thing that has happened over the years, is, as you and I know, is that they have managed to, uh, I mean, it's not this way, but it sounds like it to us. They have infiltrated the Magic the Gathering team right. with choice uh, hires, right? So yeah. I mean, we've seen Chris Tulak, James yeah. Wyatt, right? Like big yeah. D&D people have moved over and worked with the Magic team on a number of levels. Right. Uh, Maris Mullally uh, is there now and she was in the video. She was awesome. Uh, so when you have that perspective is not just Magic the Gathering card people who are looking down the noses. It's people mm-hmm. who play D&D that work there, right? Yeah. And it, it makes so much sense narratively to have these crossovers because as much as people who don't know Magic well just may think, well, it's just, it's just these cards and have numbers on them and you you move the cards around uh there's big stories that go behind these behind these releases and if you have that sort of story bible already in place you don't need to create a new story bible for your D product you can just port it over and you know have some of the best storytellers uh, in in the industry for both sides of of the coin, right? For the magic side and the D and D side, uh, put together stories to tell them in a different way. Yeah, this is probably good for Wizards itself to be collaborating like this. Yeah, yep. Internally to to use all the best resources, and you know what's the most expensive part of a book? <laughs> the art, right? The art. Yeah, for sure. And if you have all this magic art just sitting there, not using it is is just silly. Yeah, so. and Ray Winninger spoke to that, uh, speaking about how the Magic the Gathering team worked with the D&D team on Mythic Odyssey of Theros and Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, especially on art mm-hmm. with the visuals. And so that this was kind of... Um, almost the reverse, right? The team working together again, but not just taking Magic the Gathering's visuals, but now bringing in the right. story side and how do you capture in this Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set, how do you capture D&D, right? The essence of it. Yeah. Um, so we might see some really neat new art. Yeah. Uh, who knows? This, it appears that this is, so, so they've said this is a fully standard legal black border set, right? This is not some sideline pack thing. This is the actual game. Mm-hmm. Um, it may even be the t- core 2021 set because there's always a core box release 
mm -hmm. uh, that's a big deal for for and it comes usually in summer so this is supposed to be the summer release so it could very well be that which is even bigger yeah so we'll see we'll, we'll link a couple of articles there uh the trailer's certainly worth watching and, and i'm sure there'll be more news as we get closer and i think we're all gonna have to buy magic the gathering cards it's just yeah. that's just those are the rules. Right. And, and that, that will be the interesting thing is what else do they then do on the D and D side to, to uh, piggyback on this, you know, and, and is the movie at all close? That, that movie right. that's always out there in the horizon. Is it getting yeah. closer? Is this, is this, you know, because <laughs> this, is, this is a good way to build energy for that. You've got the card players into D and D and the D and D players uh, ready yeah. and, you know what? This would be an exciting time to be the vice president of Dungeons and Dragons, don't oh, you think? Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would. It would. All right. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. So the D and D celebration. We just want to give you one last reminder that when this show drops on hopefully Thursday, the D and D celebration will be, will begin one week and one day later on September eighteenth. And I don't think it's too late yet to go sign up if you're interested in playing or just go to see some of the panels and some of the streams. Um, did you want to run down a few of the things that you noted yeah. in terms of so the streams? They just, they've not announced, a, I believe they've not yet announced the players for the live stream game. So there's some sort of places in the schedule where you can see where they go. Um, but there are, they have announced the panels. And this is kind of interesting compared to D&D Live, where D&D Live was nothing but star power. Mm -hmm. And I mean stars at the highest level, right? It was right. people from TV shows and movies and things like that, uh, that you, you, know, you know, it's like, oh, wow, that person is playing a D&D &D game. Right. Um, and that, I think, left some people feeling like, hey, aren't we important too? We're part of your live stream schedule every week um you know we work with you as designers but also podcast or also live stream shouldn't we be a part of this well a lot of those people are now included in in these uh panels that are that have been announced and there's some pretty neat and interesting panels really quickly there's a live adventures wanted the um adventures league uh, stream that is going to be done live with four admins uh, how to become a D&D &D designer seems pretty neat with a bunch of really talented people. Lisa, Lisa Penrose moderating, Justice Armand, Celeste Conowich, Ashley Warren. Doesn't get much better than that. Mm -hmm. uh, what it means to be a bard. This is a pretty neat one with real life actors and musicians. Mm -hmm. Right? That's pretty cool. Uh, inclusive dungeon design. This is a panel that we'll also see appears in PAX. Mm -hmm. uh, and also pairing both here and on the pack schedule is weaving Asian stories. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of neat because there has been a series of streams. I mean, it's, it's hours and hours of coverage by a group called Asian represents who cover the harmful Asian stereotype stereotypes that are found in old TSR products, uh, third edition, um, products that, that deal with Asia. Uh, and also in things like Legend of the Five Rings and, and other uh, RPGs. And they have at times kind of, I, I think the way the internet sees it is sort of like they're attacking D&D &D and calling D&D &D and wizards to take action. And it speaks a lot to wizards that they are taking those folks and putting them on a panel. And according to Daniel Kwan, who's the sort of lead person for this effort, um, he, when he was asked to do this, he said, all right, but we're going to do what we do. And they were like, great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is pretty cool. Right. So, so D and D is not shirking away from this. They're not throwing up the walls to hide behind their, they're putting mm -hmm. front and center here. Yeah. Um, and one last one that I thought was really neat is the, the last panel here is, uh, inside the D and D studio which speaks to product management uh, head, uh, she's the director of product management, Liz Shu. I've met her, a wonderful person, and executive producer, Ray Winninger, mm -hmm. um, about everything they do behind the scenes to bring a product to life. Yeah, I mean, that's, I wanna watch this whole thing. Um, I will be running D&D &D this whole thing, so I can't. Yeah. But hopefully there will be links online or you know places to watch this because you know all of this speaks to me, just in terms of of being a D and D fan. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great stuff. I mean, these are if 
And this is another case where we go like we would have pinched ourselves, right? Like you can't believe it. It's the wealth of content that we have available. I mean, just one of these panels would have been priceless 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. 10 years sure. ago, right? Yeah. Yep. And this is all in a weekend. Yeah. And running concurrently with the Indie Celebration is PAX Online, which runs from September 12th through 20th. So more than a week uh, of content coming out of PAX. And as you mentioned, uh, there are some panels that look like they're going to be running for D&D Celebration that are similar or the same as that are running at PAX. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we have um, the, the kickoff panel for uh, D&D Celebration, which is Jeremy Crawford and um, Chris Perkins. And the uh, overall moderator for the event is L. Osili Wood. Mm-hmm. And they do this Dungeons and Designers session for D&D Celebration. And then it appears later that same day. Uh, as part of the pack schedule. And we also get a Weaving Asian Stories. Uh, but there's a lot of other uh, content here. I mean, I can't even go through all of it, but there is how to get a foot in the RPG industry door with community content. There's something that's like a D&D version of the movie Speed. Hmm. How do you publish a board game? And, I, and I'm, I can't even, this is, you know, there's endless video game content and also board game content, but just right. uh, Mike Seliker's game show Throwdown. Thursday at 8.30 p.m., something called Proper Care and Feeding of Your Franchise, D&D, the AI Way. Yeah. I hear that's being done by two uh, good-looking young men. Uh, I'm not sure who, but they will talk about how to use the Acquisitions Incorporated book to strengthen and diversify your D&D campaign. Oh, man, I can't imagine who those people are, but they must be amazing. (laughs) I'm sure they are. And that was and, Thursday at 8.30, right? Wow. Yeah, Thursday at 8.30 on uh, PAX Channel 2 even. Uh, wow. It's funny how we, we have that down. And there's another one on Sunday I wanted to point out. I believe it's at 11.30 Pacific uh, a.m. called Box Text Brawl Writing Better Adventures. Uh, in this one, James and Trocasso and I uh, go back and forth about the what box text means to an adventure, uh, how important it is ways that people get it wrong, um, maybe some alternatives to to using box text or using too much box text. Uh, So it was it was fun recording that with James. So hopefully we uh, hopefully we entertain and inform everyone out there. And so that tell us who won, because I mean, yeah, well, obviously I won um, because I'm the one standing. Uh, (laughs) And and uh, you wanted to point out one on Friday. Yeah, I mean, Acquisitions Incorporated live game uh, comes back. Mm. Uh, it's been a while since we got to see the crew. And yeah. they are taking that to heart, saying that five years have passed since they were in Avernus. Yeah, well, it feels and like it. It does. And now they come back and they find that Acquisitions Incorporated has undergone a reorg. And this tells us, that the announcement says that there is a returning fan that is dear to the franchise that will be there. So, I mean, who could it be? Yeah, yeah. Scott Kurtz, is it Will Wheaton? Is it, you know, like, who could it be? We have no idea. Yeah, all right. I uh, I look for it as a fan of the a- Acquisitions Incorporated and someone who's written in that world now, I am waiting with bated breath on that. Yeah, and I, I could go endlessly. Maybe in the show notes, we'll list some of our favorites yeah. so folks can take a look at them because they're just, there are a lot of really cool things here and, I mean, like my daughter likes Japan. So there's one on the history of Japanese board games that I'm going to watch with her. You know, it's just, there's just a lot here. So take a look at that between D and D and PAX. What free time? Yes, exactly. And I I wanted you to talk about this uh, new show on the D and D stream um, fireside with Peter Atkinson. uh, Cause you seem to know a bit about that. Yeah, I've been watching this on the gen. So it's it's a you know D and D the D and D stream lineup often has another channel that they rebroadcast. Uh, so in this case, they are going to regularly host the Gen Con Twitch channel Wednesdays 4 p.m. Put this on your calendar because it's great stuff. Uh, Fireside with Peter Adkisson. Peter Adkisson used to be the CEO and founder of Wizards of the Coast. 
He's the guy behind deciding to acquire TSR and bring D&D in because he loved D&D so much. Um, he is the CEO of Gen Con, I believe still. Mm -hmm. I think that's correct. Uh, and he uh, heads this show where in the past, what he would do is he'd talk about the era when he was at Wizards of the Coast, which was the third edition, mm -hmm. and talk to a number of, of notable designers and minds that were active in that time that worked at Wizards. And you can check out the Gen Con channel. It has a bunch of really, really cool interviews, great designer talk. And this season is now focused on new voices that are emerging in D&D. They started with Celeste Conowich. Uh, who has been a guest on the show mm -hmm. and is amazing. Um, they let slip that Hannah Rose will be on the show in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of other designers will be featured here. So that's going to be really exciting to, to see what newer designers are looking at, and especially designers that are, are tend to be freelancers, right? Working on the DMs Guild. And this does seem to be a DMs Guild collaboration. All right. Awesome. I mean, that's, again right in, in the wheelhouse of what we talk about uh, here all the time. So good stuff. Yeah. And this is probably isn't news, but Teos loves minis. <laughs> sure um, so, so he, uh, he keeps an eye, he keeps a finger on the pulse of the minis world. And I guess there's a big whiz kids announcement. There have been, yeah. So they have recently, uh, brought in some new folks and there is now a, a YouTube channel where they go over uh, the releases. And so they went through and, and it's just the kind of thing that there is a large pile of drool on my desk <laughs> after I finished watching this because I want everything so badly. There is an Icewind Dale set of blind box minis. This is kind of what you typical think of, you know, D&D minis, they come in a box, you don't know what you get, maybe you get four or five minis inside. There's some really neat ones. If you're going to run Rime of the Frost Maiden, it's the kind of things you want. White dragons, woolly mammoths, frost giants, skeletons, yetis, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, but then there are some special releases, and Whiskits is doing more and more of these, and they're also moving to a direct sales model. They still sell through stores and all that, but given COVID, you mm -hmm. can order directly from them. Uh, you can, of course, still buy them from the resellers that tend to shave some money off, but if you want to support Whiskits directly, you can do that. Uh, they announced a gargantuan Shardalan dragon. So this is that like, you know, stained ice element thing that's part of the Frost Maiden book. Mm -hmm. um, it's an entire dragon made of it. It looks amazing. And it, there is no, I guess, gargantuan size in D&D now in this edition, but it's that sort of next step up from huge. Right. It looks enormous and awesome. And they also, that's coming out in September, like in, in a week or two. They also announced... Um, Arve Turas <laughs> is the name of this thing. It's our gargantuan white dragon that comes with a removable rider and harness. Wow. So this thing is gorgeous too. They showed this off. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oof. So if you, uh, and they're also doing some packs to support the Curse of Strahd revamped release. Yeah, those are those are visible packs, so you can just look inside of them. If if you've seen their Paizo line, it's sort of like that with the iconic characters. It has you know Strahd holding a wine glass and and all the different major NPCs you'd expect from each uh, from the from the Curse of Strahd book. Uh, amazing! If you're going to be running the revamped one, then this is two great packs, and they're relatively cheap for minis. Great, beautiful minis. Uh, and then they've also been releasing paint night kits to stores, but with COVID, they now have through a store, you can buy it and do it remotely instead mm -hmm. of having to compete in person and you sort of paint it up. It comes with a mini, like this one's the ogre zombie that's coming out next, but they rotate them every now and then a mini with all the paints you need. And then you can paint that up and showcase what you did. Nice. And we'll have a link to the YouTube channel where you can see all these neat announcements. Great. Th and last but not least, when this show drops on Tuesday or Thursday, the following Tuesday is the release of Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden hardcover. So, you know, that, that small little bit of news after all of this. Uh, there are already reviews going up at different places on the Internet. We have a few links in the show notes about those. Uh, like Newbie DM always does a Twitter review. So if you follow uh, Newbie DM on Twitter, you can see his take on things. There's an IGN article. Uh, the Gaming Gang does their thing with all the releases. So that's up on YouTube. Uh, so far, the the from what I've seen, it's pretty positive. 
yeah. in terms of how the book is laid out, uh, what it contains, the the format for it. So we uh, look forward to probably within the next couple of weeks talking about it ourselves. Um, yeah. Either a you know first maybe a background of Icewind Dale and then delving deeper into the book itself. That's gonna be great. Yeah, just I've got, got cold. I got chills. You got chills just thinking about it. <laughs> Well, those chills may be coming from a god, Teos. Did you know that? Oh, yes. It yeah, could be it could be an omen. It could be an Ooh. omen that uh, that you should be doing something or you should not be doing something. Because we are now going it's to... Probably f- it, right? There. Probably. Probably <laughs> it's the latter. I um, did it again. Yep. So we're going to finish our talk on the mythic Odysseys of Theros by covering chapters four, five, and six. Uh, so let's talk about chapter four creating Theros adventures. Um, yeah. And before we do that, I want to just very yeah. quickly say there's an awesome thread that we will have in the show notes, the show notes where Jessica Price, who used to work for Paizo said, Hey, I worked on this book. She did design for the goddess Carometra, uh, as well as a few other things, the Leonin and some other pieces. Uh, but she talked about the mentality she took as a designer on creating this goddess, which at first blush when she received the sort of list of what this goddess covers. She's like, oh, okay, it's kind of like the Greek goddess Demeter. Mm-hmm. But then she looks into, uh, in this Twitter thread, she walks through kind of the process. She goes to think of like, well, what is this goddess really? What can it be? And how it ends up being much, much more. And so I highly suggest anyone who designs to mm-hmm. look or who's just interested in how these, you know, a designer creates one of these gods, goddesses, take a look at that Twitter thread. It's really very cool. Um, and it speaks to how this book, I think, does more than what you might think it does. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does a good job of not just presenting the material, but presenting the thoughts behind the material. Uh, and that's, that's very important, I think, to a lot of people, because it's one thing to be given something and said, here it is. And it's another thing to be told, here it is, and this is what we think about it as designers and as DMs and as players. Uh, because that gives you the substance behind the style that, that you're going to be bringing into your game. Yeah. Yeah. It all feeds forward. Like if I say, Oh, it's a goddess of the heart. All right, cool. I've met a lot of those in my days. Right. But if I give you these little interesting bits, when I'm talking about the goddess in the God section, and then I go into the section on creating adventures and I say, Hey, here's how you can create really cool adventures about this goddess. And then it all starts adding up, right? And I've got all these ideas as a DM and I'm ready to go into a really neat campaign. Yep. Because when, when they talk about these, cre- when they talk about creating these Theros adventures, they talk about uh, three elements that you can combine to form adventures, um, heroes, gods, and monsters. And, you know, all of those things are super important when you are creating adventures. Uh, so it's good when, you are given those pieces that you yourself as the DM can put together to make, make these adventures. Uh, the adventures they say are God driven. So what's important in adventure? You need locations, you need plots, you need monsters. And by, by pulling a God out and saying, this is going to be my focus for either this adventure or this campaign, you are being given those tools uh, right off the bat that help you as a designer of adventures or as as a designer of campaigns to uh to put these things together you still need to know a little bit of what you're doing to use those pieces to their maximum potential um they do point you in the book to the the dungeon master's guide to say we already have information on creating adventures and creating campaigns so read that then come back here and use these pieces also, this is why I love the DMs Guild, right? Because you're, you're given these things. Maybe you don't have the time to create your own adventures. Maybe you still feel unsure about how to best do it. There are many people on the DMs Guild who can pull these pieces together and put them into a product for you and just say, you know, $2.99, here you go. And uh, they've taken the tools that, anyone can use in that toolbox and shown you in a product how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw a a relatively short adventure from empty black. We talked about a few episodes Mm -hmm. ago. Right. Um, I know that Alan Patrick is thinking of announcing something with several other authors. I think they've been hinting at it and it's going to come out soon. Yeah. 
Um, there, there's a lot that you can look at. I, I like this chapter. It does a really nice job of setting things up. And then it provides a table of omens mm -hmm. uh, by God. So you can roll randomly. And so, okay, I've got crucifix and I rolled and the night sky appears to wheel overhead as though years are streaming by. Yep. Yeah. Those, those omens are super cool. Not just in this, in this context, but in any game, uh, one of the hardest things to do as a DM is work in these divinations, these auguries. This gives you a nice table with different ways that you can present that information without having to come up with it on the fly. And this is really what it's trying to capture is that idea of, of Greek mythology where the gods reach out to you or you reach out to the gods or you see divine prophecy and you take action, right? Uh, maybe wine is turning into serpents or maybe the stars are strange and your town says, you know, something must happen, go to the Oracle, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe your God speaks to you and provides you a vision, uh, you know, or you're a champion of the God. And so when something happens, you must react. Uh, these are the kind of things that the, the, this, that a Theros campaign is about, right? right? And so it's giving you the ingredients with some guidance of how to go about creating that campaign that you want. It gives some great advice about using gods as benefactors, but that advice works pretty much for any campaign. And that advice is don't eliminate character choice and also don't eliminate risk or danger or consequences. Because sometimes as the DM, you get so caught up in what you want the characters to do that you use these omens or these gods or these more powerful beings as sledgehammers rather than chisels. Uh, you try to force the campaign, force the direction of the campaign, and in doing so, eliminate the character's choice, el eliminate their prerogative to do what they want. Um, and again, it's more likely to happen in a campaign where you have these ultra-powerful beings controlling things. But in any campaign, that's good advice. And you also don't want to get the story on such a track that when the characters do something foolish or when they get in over their heads, you, you, you soft-pedal it because you don't want the risk or the danger they're in to sidetrack this story you're trying to tell. You can't do that. You have to let the risk and the danger and the consequences still matter, even when there is this omen, there is this plot that is bringing uh, the characters along. Yeah, it, it, I like how this is done. I do wish that, um, and, and you kind of said this, I think, at the, at the end of the last episode, that they don't give you a campaign to follow. And I think you were right in saying last time that I, I think this book could have been stronger if they had said, here are a few possible campaigns or here is a campaign structure, insert the God here, mm -hmm. you know, color it with this God. I think that a framework would have been really useful. Yeah. Uh, the outlines of heroic journey arcs, you know, something like that would have been really useful because in some ways I think it, it makes it seem maybe, I think this could intimidate people could intimidate dms a bit but okay i gotta like there's all this instruction but you know what do i really do when it's almost like you could really say it's pretty simple come up with how the players are going to learn about something going wrong yep. decide who's doing the wrong throw in a bunch of mythic monsters around that mm -hmm. that are going to escalate and be awesome right you want a hydra at some point with huge heads and whatever and you know and then a mythic at the end you're going to have a mythic monster um and you want to go to Nyx and you want to go to the underworld. Right. Done. Right. Like, I mean, it's, that's kind of the framework and you could just insert God here and then color that. But yeah. you know, yeah, Th this is a little more. This, cha this chapter was a recipe book and it showed you a picture of the final meal. It looks delicious. And it gave you a list of ingredients that all looked like they would be delicious at a meal but they didn't quite give you the order in which to place them in the pot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most people, most, I think most DMS or at least most experienced DMS understand how adventures and campaigns work and they can cobble something together. 
it's it's for those people that you know maybe this is the first book they've picked up or maybe they've been a player and they're going to try DMing for the first time and and this sounds good it's just there are a few pitfalls that that are in the way right one of the pitfalls that they could have warned about is don't try to do too much too soon right that's something I see DMs try to do way too often is you've got all these great things and you just want to introduce everything all at once. You know, that, that would have been a good, a good outline would be for, for the first four adventures, right? Levels one, two, three, and four. Keep it simple, keep it small, and just hint at the main plot rather yeah. than having the gods immediately come in and start moving pieces around. And, and a lot of this adds up uh, when you've read the whole book, and if folks remember last time we talked about the world, the geography of the setting, this is a small place, right? It's a confined setting. Right. And so your, your adventure does not have to take you far and wide. It might metaphysically when you go to, you know, the underworld or something like that, but, but it's, um, it's a, you can just take it easy on those first few levels because the world's not that big. You don't have to go that far to experience the great adventures of the world. Um, so this whole chapter, after this initial setup, what the bulk of it is, and, and really chapter four is, starts half the book. So this tells you there's a lot of content here. Yeah. Uh, it walks by through each deity one at a time. And for each de- deity is giving details on using this deity as a campaign focus. Mm-hmm. If you have a champion of that deity, what are the possible goals that a champion has? Likely villains that would try to counter this god, and then locations, including a cool map for each one that are really very nice maps. And, and if you bought this through through a local gaming store, you could get a copy of some of the maps as a special handout map. Yeah, and and they, I mean, they are beautiful maps. Again, the ingredients are wonderful. All of the the ingredients, and the the outline of the gods and the quests and what you might put into an adventure or a campaign that uses this god as its main focus you know is is great this is all the brainstorming that you would do as a dm normally done for you yeah now it's just make it work yep yeah um you do also get advice for nautical adventures and underworld adventures which are two really you know jason and the argonauts type thing and uh going into the the underworld, I mean, those are classic things to inject into this kind of a campaign. Mm-hmm. I, I said on Twitter that it, I think if I were to run this, I would want to run this um, sort of the way we did the Acquisitions Incorporated book or the way that uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord works, where every session would be a level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get a lot of piety yep. quickly so that you're very heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, very, you know, you kind of have a few, find the, the, find the trouble initial levels and then get into some really epic play and it can be a very short and sweet campaign Mm -hmm. but you guys are going quickly yeah uh, leveling each time it would feel very epic and you'd be facing greater and greater dangers every time getting lots of power lots of piety i think it'd be a really amazing campaign yeah and speaking of getting rewards uh chapter five if we're ready to move on the thing is just to mention there is an included adventure in here as well it's 10 pages, uh, no. it's short, but it's a, it's a nice adventure, No Silent Secret, which yep. deals with uh, the return of people that come back from the underworld. Right. Yeah. And then chapter five, we move on to the treasure. Uh, they have eight magic items, including a flying chariot, the helm of the gods, molten bronze skin, potion of aqueous form, pyxis of pandemonium, Siren Song Lyre, Sling Bullets of Alithmanai. That's easy. That's hard to say. And a two birds sling, as in hitting two birds with one stone. One stone. Yeah. Um, by the way, a Pixis is a cylindrical box with a lid. Um, if you if you think of like an ice bucket from, from a hotel, uh, that's what a Pixis is. I remember hotels. Those were yes. artifacts. Uh, I, yeah. People would gather at conventions. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it was, it's funny, uh, the table, remarkable origins that you can use to set items apart. Uh, it's, it's hilarious to me because it's like a remarkable origins table that only has 12 things. 
I, I don't know how remarkable it actually becomes if there's only 12 different ways you could make it remarkable. Well, you know, sometimes, as you and I know from making books, uh, because we've had the fortune of it, sometimes the page count doesn't quite line up with what was yeah. expected. Yeah. And you got to throw in a table. Yeah. And you just try to make the best table you can that fits that space. And, and maybe this was a bigger one that was cut or there was right. just a space where like, you know what, how about 12 remarkable origins? Sure. Throw sure. that in there. Yeah. So, so you may want to make your own remarkable origins for, <laughs> for your magic item. And again, this is good advice, not just for a Theros campaign, but for any campaign, right? Instead of this being a plus one dagger, you know, put a story behind it, give it some meaning, um, not necessarily mechanical meaning, but narrative meaning that could come up later or that the players or their characters can refer back to um, yeah, as something different than, than what everyone else in the world has. Yeah. And, you know, I think so. So there are, these are neat magic items. Like I dig these uh, magic items overall. There's some fun ideas. Uh, and then we can talk about the artifacts too. But one yeah. thing that, uh, I'm kind of struck by when, when I look at these is I wish they'd kind of, I, I wish they'd hired Rich Lescaflair to take the ideas in his armaments of legacy mm -hmm. DM skilled offering yep. and built in the system here or taken what's in, um, there's sort of, what's it called? There's a system that's in the Wildemount book mm -hmm for items to sort of grow. And I did something like this in my home campaign. Yeah. I think that would have been great for this. You know, yeah. the idea of um, a mythic item that starts not so mythic and grows with right. you would right. be perfect for this campaign. Yeah, th they do that with the artifacts. That's um, true, the artifacts scale, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah you wanna talk the, about those? Yeah, so this is, this is exactly as Teo said, the artifacts began as, you know, powerful items. But as your piety grows, if you are, um, what's that word when you're connected to the magic item? Attuned. Attuned, thank you. Uh, getting old here. Uh, when you're attuned to the magic item, it, uh, it progresses in power as your piety grows. Um, and, and artifacts are, the artifacts they give are tied to specific gods. So this is, yeah, it harkens back to that progressive thing as you talked about. Yeah, later. you're right. I'd forgotten yeah. that it did it. It scaled it, this way yeah. with the piety. Yep. But mm -hmm. I, I love this. Um, I, we were using this with third edition. I saw it used with fourth edition. And now with fifth edition, I love these progressive magic items. I put one in uh, Return of the Lizard King. And nice. I, I think it's, it, it helps offset some of the problems that you get with magic items in D&D where a character needs too many magic items because they get one at lower levels and then it becomes obsolete or they need 27 magic items to do the things they want to do when you could just have one magic item that does more and more things as the characters get higher in level. Uh, so I love that. I think the one thing I don't like about this is that uh, there's some really great design and then at various piety levels. So say like piety 10 plus the magic item has one randomly determined minor beneficial property. Mm -hmm. Just tell me which one. Right. Right. Like do the work for me. Like I, I know yeah. I can choose a different one. I can always customize something, but right. But just a random role is not how you create a fixus, the bow of Nylea, right? Like, right. No, you won't need to have things that are, like the wild, like this goddess, like yeah. you could go through, you know, you designer, please go through and determine right. those minor things. Cause that, that, then you've done the work for me. Yep. The other thing I, I was disappointed in with this section was they, you have all this information on all of these gods and these gods are so important to this setting and whole campaigns and all the heroes are focused the plot is focused on these gods and then you give me five artifacts for only five of the gods i want one artifact per god yeah that that's the that's the least you can give me well or maybe a little more information on how i would take this as a template yep like like maybe give me four and space send spend the space you spent on the fifth to yeah. tell me how to always do this. And, and, I, and I mean, it's not like it's that complicated, so I could just take one and use it as a template. But, yeah. but I think it's better mental space if you just say to me, 
do this for the gods, right? Do this for the gods that are in your campaign as right. part of that instruction. Yeah, because even if your players don't have it, one of the NPCs will, one, yeah. especially one that uh, is opposing the player's quests. And these items are no joke. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, they're serious this stuff. This Crusor, the Spear of Heliod, is a plus three item to begin with. Right. And to begin with, when you hit with an attack, you, the target takes an extra 2d8 rating damage always. We yeah. haven't even gotten to the piety stuff. Piety 3 plus is 15 temporary hit points each dawn, and then you start getting random benefits at different piety levels. Yeah. Woo! Yep. <laughs> Well, so I think the scaling could maybe be a little different in a, you know, you might want to, in your own campaign, ease up on that, right? What, yeah. Like what I did with, with my campaign when I was running Tunum of Annihilation and I would start as a plus one item and it would grow as they met different uh, yeah. you know, parts of the adventure. They would grow to plus two and plus three and so on. Yeah. Is that stuff in? Well, even the, the sling bullets of Althemene mm-hmm. are regular magic items. Uh, they're just plus two sling bullets, right? But they have a D4 random property. One of those one D4 random properties is banishment. <laughs> it's like, uh, and the other one, I think, stuns the, the, uh, the monster. So I mean, that's little tiny sling bullets of annihilation is what they are. And if a bullet misses its target, it comes back into your pouch. It only loses its magic if it hits. So you're... Right. you're I mean, wow. Okay. But again, this is that kind of epic campaign where if we're going to do this nonsense, Theros is probably the campaign to do this sort of nonsense and have this going, yep. you know, but so let's but you got to be careful, right? DMs be right. careful because when you, when you give somebody a sling bullet that can banish yep. and this campaign can have things like the really cool Hydra monster, right? you know, you don't really want your one single foe banished or stunned yeah. right. or anything like that. Exactly. Speak, speaking of the Hydra uh, and mm-hmm. the monsters, the final chapter is called Friends and Foes, and this deals with my favorite part of any campaign, the monsters. Uh, they first talk about Nyx-born creatures, legendary creatures born of Nyx. Uh, this appear- is that star world of the gods, the, the, yep. the celestial heavens, yep. Mount Olympus type world. Yep. yep, the sort of night, but also you know, beyond the mortal realm world. And the first thing they talk about are these Nyx-born creatures, and they give them, uh, you can give any creature the Nyx-born trait or traits. And, you know, when I was first reading through the chapter, I was like, oh, cool, traits I can give monsters. And I start reading them, and I was disappointed uh, because, A, some of these traits are negative, uh, like having the 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 same as the drow, right? The the if you're in sun, sunlight sensitivity, uh, and then a lot of the traits that they give, there's no way for the players to know that they have these traits, right? Yeah. It's it's they cannot be polymorph, they cannot be shape changed, you know the, that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, that's all cool and all, but the players will never know that this ogre that they're fighting is actually Nyxborn. Uh, unless you do something more than just these traits. Right, and I have think, to polymorph it to know. Right. And, and what, I mean, you're fighting an ogre, you're what, fourth, fifth level. You, you don't, <laughs> you don't, you're not shape changing. You're not polymorphing uh, any, any creatures. So it, it just, it fell a little flat for me and I didn't read uh, f- far enough to know if they fixed that with later things like tying these traits to something else. Uh, so we'll have to continue through to find out. Yeah, I, don't, I don't, I don't believe so. Um, and even so what the next thing they do after this sort of next born is they talk about classic monsters and they kind of go through, uh, monsters that are already in the monster manual mm-hmm. and how to therosify them, I guess. Right. So, you know, a basilisk on Theros has four legs, statistically identical, Legends tell us what blah blah blah. I don't find this super useful. It's right. you know, I would have liked my space in this chapter to be more, you know, truly useful. And this is where I'd spend spend space more on like you described how to make something really Nick's porn. Right. Um, 
And I could see something that would really be, you know, cosmetic things that would make something stand out, mm-hmm. lore things that I'm going to really tie to my campaign, right. or even uh, sort of features or powers, right? So like we did this in Acquisitions Incorporated book where depending to represent the factions, right? there were little rider powers that you could give to your monster, whatever it might be. So it could be a guard, but they're a guard who has one of the positions in the Acquisitions Incorporated corporate books so your players recognizing oh my goodness you know this guard is a documenter right right um and in that same way that if we had some rider powers that really said that this is nick's porn or that make it feel more like a theros type creature that would have been i think more useful than just telling me that you know blue dragons live along the ocean shore and cliffside caves like it's okay but it's yeah, yeah. it's all right show me how to reskin existing monsters in a way that's important to to theros what a a an ogre that worships uh the death god what do they have that other ogres don't right that that's exactly what i want as a tool to build into my campaign yeah and some of these uh sections on classic monsters have some neat information so it's not like it's it's all there, there is value here, but I think it could have been a little more useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have about 50 new monsters, so that's uh, something. Yeah, and some pretty cool ones. It's a wide range of CRs. Um, you have Cerberus in you know, two or three head configurations. You have Chimera. This one I really like, the Chimera with uh, um, variable body parts. It's mm-hmm. a whole table of them. Yeah. So they give you a stat block, which is one thing that's nice. Like, always give me the default. So they give you, like, a, a Theron Chimera, and they talk about then how to customize it so you can decide whether it's from a swamp or a mountain, from the coast, and then that gives you sets of suggestions to what bring in. And then you have things like, you know, it could have a shark head. Mm-hmm. It could have a cockatrice beak. It could have a tidal wave breath, um, yeah. shark tail, constricting tail, right? That's I love that. That's yeah. great. Yep. And, you know, I just, I'm glad when books have monsters because when I'm putting together an adventure and I go to the, go to D&D Beyond and search for the CR or for the habitat or for certain powers or fly speed or whatever, as soon as I see a monster, I'm changing it anyway. I'm keeping the stats the same, but I'm just changing how it looks. So any new monster is a good monster for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, it, and I love the construction of monsters. So whenever I see new monsters and someone will have these neat ideas, like the abhorrent overlord has a storm of crows uh, that it just conjures around itself. Spectral crows and harpies. Like, I love seeing how a designer took that idea and gave it mechanical form because I like doing those kinds of things too. So it's always nice to have lots of guides. Um, it's also fascinating to me because I know a little bit about Magic the Gathering um, I sometimes play it, but because I understand the business of it, I know that it's no simple thing to take something like this important overlord and just give it some stats. Like a lot of brains have to look at this and be okay with it. I would imagine yep. there's a rigmarole to go through, you know, a process that is is hard for the creator to go through yep. to have this kind of come through. And, and and so I'm glad that they do that. Like they take on some monsters that are off of the, you know, previously have only really existed as cards. And they give them this form and where possible make them feel just like they are normal D&D monsters. And that's pretty neatly done. Yep. And the, the student of mythology in me was overjoyed to see the hundred handed ones, the Hecaton Kairis, uh, which, which I go back 30 years to my college days and I remember studying. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they did their homework uh, in terms of, finding obscure mythological beasts to to put into uh put into this book yeah and there's there's some really nice this is where the variants like the the, the blood toll harpy and uh femia the dissonant song there's some really neat variations on existing monsters that uh, any dnd fan should want to check out mm-hmm. you also get some troops the hoplites from the different city states, the three city states, those are represented here. Um, and those are some pretty fun creatures to face off as a group. So if you're looking for just foes of some nature, especially if they're city-based, I mean, they feel like they're military people, um, but but really they can double as anything. These are really useful. Um, one of them's a spellcaster. 
the other two are, are sort of martial in nature, but those are very useful. And the hydras, the hydras are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you don't use this book for a campaign, you can mine it for monsters like there's no tomorrow. Uh, Polukranos, which is your CR-19 uh, gargantuan hydra, has a miniature from WizKids uh, that is well worth checking out. And it has some pretty neat legendary actions and a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But we should probably get to the subject of mythic monsters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh... <laughs> they're pretty beefy that's 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 yeah. my that's my first thought as they should be in this campaign and so we get a little bit of preamble on what a mythic monster is the idea of being storied terrors we talked at the beginning of the previous uh, when we started covering this book the beginning of the session that the, the concept of theros is that dreams shape the world and so these are terrors whose might and dreadful deeds set them apart as menaces of legendary proportions. And the myths have shaped them, right, into being this incredibly horrible thing. The art is amazing. Like there's this art of Arasta of the endless web uh, crawling with spiders over her own spider form. And she looks like this kind of crow. And I mean, it's just, it's amazing art. Um, And the idea is that you can take these monsters. This is what the mythic design is. You can take a mythic monster and you can run it as a normal legendary monster, though it's supposed to be pretty powerful. These are, these are beefy. They give you three of them, and they're supposed to be beefy foes. Mm-hmm. But on top of it, you can choose to make a mythic, and then there's an instruction set for when they're mythic. Yep, and that's a lot more options. Uh, on top of legendary actions, you can, uh, you can take these mythic actions. And what they try to do, I think, to keep things simple, I can imagine the team going back and forth on what what should make a monster mythic. Because when I first heard about it as a, as a gamer, I'm like, ooh, mythic actions. I'm thinking, well, this is extra. Mm-hmm. And it's extra design, but not extra actions. Correct. So if you activate their mythic trait, and we can talk about that in a second, then you get to use the mythic options. Mm-hmm. And the mythic options use legendary actions so it's like having a bigger menu of legendary actions to choose from so it's not a tremendous bump in power necessarily it's sort of like it can just be like more options right well like for example for for arasta if you go from the the legendary action is a make an extra claw attack if you go up to mythic it's make two attacks with claws so it's just you know it's just using the same options is just bumping it up in power a bit. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and they might be things that I think when you're designing it, you think, well, that might be a little too powerful, but perfect for a mythic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, there are some neat, it, it, the other thing that's interesting is this mythic trigger. So it's not as simple as saying the way, the way this is designed, it's not as simple as saying, Oh, it's a mythic monster. It gets to use the mythic options. There are actually conditions for when you do, when you go to mythic. Right. Um, so for example, for Arasta to have her um, mythic trait, not only must you say that it's mythic, like she's a mythic monster, but um, she must have temporary hit points from her armor of spiders ability, mm-hmm. which only happens when she is reduced to zero hit points. So the way it works with Arasta is she, you know, this is a spoiler, but she, when she hits zero hit points, she doesn't die. She regains 200 hit points. She, her children swarm all over her, and she gains 100 temporary hit points with a spider baby. Right. Now she's mythic. Not, yeah. So now, now things are going to get serious. This, and see, she normally has uh, 300 hit points. So you, you faced her 300 hit points worth. You get her now for 200 more hit points worth, and she now uses her mythic actions. And they're all, they all have some variation of that in how their mythic will trigger. Um, like uh, Hithonia, it's for an hour after she has used Shed Skin, which also happens when she dies. Mm-hmm. Um, she regains 199 hit points, which is her normal total, yep. um, and kind of sheds out of her, her Medusa-like skin. Mm-hmm. And now she's in mythic form. So it tells you that these that, that there's a design here that ties into the overall design of the monster, plus mm-hmm. this idea that something triggers it, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah. And which ties into the overall tone of the book of the stories told with this book, right? Which is this sense of something being beyond mortal. So you're killing the mortal form and then the immortal form takes, I like that takes over. So yeah, it it fits in nicely with, with the whole thing. I had not thought of it that way, Sean. I, you know, when I first read this, I was a little disappointed. It felt flat in that it's sort of like, well, it's just sort of a beefier legendary action, but I'm not, you know, it's not new. It felt like it wasn't new design. It was just instead of legendary, use mythic, it's, yeah. you know, one attack, it's two. Some of that feels a little meh. Um, but when it's combined with all three of these have that whole idea that in order to be mythic, you must have died once. Yeah. And with what you're saying story-wise, I think that does have, it, it's enough. Yeah. It's enough to make it pretty neat. It, uh, it, it also prevents us from seeing design where just every monster is given mythic just to make it right. awesomer. But. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's what I would call elegant, right? It's not, it's not over the top. It fits nicely within the framework that's already set up for monsters. Uh, and so it, it story-wise makes sense. And then it does just a little bit more. It's just one more little switch you can flip which isn't different than anything than everything you've seen before and and it works in the sense that it's going to be surprising to the players um and it's a nice little fun thing that you as the dm can do to to have your fun at the table yeah and this does give a nod to uh magic the gathering creatures where you know you'll have graveyard abilities or things like that so it does a little bit of that as well i am curious you know whether the D&D designers, because we only get these three examples, uh, can you have a mythic, in theory, you could have a mythic action that doesn't require the creature dying. Sure. Is that intended? You know, there, there isn't an instruction set on building mythic actions. There are just these three examples mm-hmm. that are somewhat similar with how the trigger works. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether they come back to this at all. I want to see on the DM's Guild the big book of mythic monsters. <laughs> yeah. I, awesome. I would enjoy doing that, but yeah. I'm busy. <laughs> so, so yeah, exactly. So that is the end of our look at the mythic odysseys of Theros. Uh, I think overall, my impression is, uh, while not perfect, it is a great way to bring first a Magic the Gathering world into D&D. Secondly, a great way to bring this sort of Greek mythology into a campaign and making it feel different than a regular D&D campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like, I think this is a book that could have really fallen short. Mm-hmm. It would have been easy for this to just do a few things. And, I, and in some ways I feel like Ravnica did that. Like it was, Ravnica was nowhere close to my favorite book. It's not a bad book, mm-hmm. but it was not my favorite. Um, and I felt like it maybe, it, it needed a little more to make it an interesting book. And I think this does that. This takes it to, to it's a really cool book. Like I think yeah. not enough people will see this book as my guess. Because right. they'll discount it as a Magic the Gathering based book. Yeah. Uh, but this is a very well designed book, very well executed book. Um, the concept, right from concept to, to execution, really very good. And, and it calls to you once you flip through it that you can have a really neat campaign using this content. Absolutely. It's also done, I think it may be the first book where Wesley Schneider is the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, along with James Wyatt, who's from the Magic team, but yeah. used to be on the D&D team a while yeah. back, uh, and, and some different freelancers. So, I, I, you know, I think that was done really well. And, and on, the, uh, on Twitter, Jessica Price talked about the difficulty of bringing disparate freelancers together mm-hmm. and how she felt that Wes is particularly good at doing this. And, and I, I think that shows here because it doesn't feel like many voices. Right. It was woven together well. Yeah. And that's that is true. That is very hard to do. Uh, I've been on both sides of that equation. And <laughs> it's uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of patience, but a lot of skill as well. So with that, we are going to sign off for the day, but we want to thank everyone out there for listening. And if you are a patron of the show, thank you so much. Uh, if you would like to become a patron of the show, we would certainly appreciate your input. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP to 
see what it takes to become a patron. For only a dollar, you could do so and get some freebies in return. Uh, but if you can't support us in that way, that's okay. We still appreciate you being a listener. Uh, if you can spread the word of D&D and down with D&D uh, through various social media sites, we would appreciate that. Uh, speaking of social media, Teos, where can people find you? Uh, under Underworld, you can find me at AlphaStream. <laughs> And in Nick's, the uh, blog is alphastream.org. <laughs> I am uh, essentially mortal, so you can just find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Or you can go to, down, to the Down With D&D forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and talk to us about your likes and dislikes in D&D with the show or with life in general, although we can't do too much about that latter thing. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of encoded designs. So, Teos, what do you think we should do now? Let's go kill some mythic monsters. Ooh, they're tough. <laughs> we can do it. Okay. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.